This is Audio Gyan and I am your host Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. Today we have Rajini Bakshi with us on Audio Gyan. She's an Indian author, researcher and activist. Her work primarily focuses on issues related to non-violence, economics, ecology and peace. Rajni is the founder and curator of Ahinsa Conversations, an online platform for exploring the possibilities of non-violence. More about her uh, in the show notes. I've been to Vipassana a couple of times and found that peace uh, is an outcome of war and that made me curious to have conversations with Rajni on understanding the design of peace. Uh, a small note uh, before we start that these are complex subjects of lifetime and uh, me and obviously i am very very naive to this but rajni uh, and i had a conversation before the recording that we are all exploring the right questions for the answers around us uh, on that note uh, welcome uh, rajni to audio gan it's a real real honor to have you on the show Uh, thank you thank you kedar it's an honor to be here and thank you so much for uh, you know including me in this series superb yeah so i'm i'm like i'm short of words like yeah the privilege to talk to you and i've come up with few questions uh, mainly to understand and this podcast is generally about design so i thought we can go philosophical on what is design of peace uh, and sure. i wanted to start off by like a basic or or more of a context setting question as to what does non violence or ahimsa mean to you and also tell us a little bit about ahimsa conversations how and where did it start yes. yeah so uh, maybe kedar will start with the basics uh, which is the world health organization has a definition uh so maybe we'll just and i'm not saying that we should take it as final or the last word or anything but it's a good starting point for mm-hmm. our purpose and as you said uh this whole conversation is premised on recognizing that uh, we are all exploring at least the two of us are in this uh as an exploratory and uh, reflective uh exercise mm-hmm. uh, rather than uh claiming to have any definitive and uh, you know uh final answers right so uh, i thought this is a good place to start so the world health organization says violence is the intentional use of physical force or power threatened or actual against oneself or against a group or community that either results in or has a high likelihood of resulting in injury death psychological harm mal development or deprivation wow <laughs> that's quite an elaborate one <laughs> yeah and i'm sure that you know they must have worked on this for a very long time mm. uh before uh, coming to this understanding so this is uh, you know i i and i've used this in um, in a booklet that i published so yeah. i quoted from this over there uh but now in this context uh if shall we jump straight into asking what is ahimsa then yes please yeah <laughs> uh, so uh again 
there are as many answers to that question as there are people interested in the concept. So let's keep that in front. In fact, saying what ahimsa is is far more complicated than agreeing on what is violence. Mm. But here is a broad agreement. There is broad agreement on the following. And I say, when I say agreement, it is among people who are engaged with the ideal, who are committed to the concept, who have been working with it in very practical and real life, real term, you know, ways. Mm. One is that ahimsa is not the absence of violence, either physical or verbal. So mere absence of, yeah, mere, mere absence of physical or verbal violence is not ahimsa. Okay. Okay. Secondly, that ahimsa is much more than not killing and not injuring. I mean, I, this second is really an elaboration of the first. Correct. Three, that ahimsa is the positive energy that is released when we overcome the desire to harm someone. Hmm. So it's much more subtle. Yeah. Four, that ahimsa is the process of working to overcome destructive emotions like fear, anger, hatred. Mm. And in its highest form, ahimsa is the presence of love in action. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Does it, does it uh, sort of point to, as in I have this, Whatever, like you don't look at the finger, but where it is pointing to. So, so is it pointing to sort of complete self-restraint and then just giving out love? Is that uh, so an understanding? In its highest form, in its highest form, yes. Uh, hmm. And if you like, maybe a little later in our talk, we can go into that in more detail. Uh, because I am the the most common opposition that I am uh, confronted with, you know, mm. when people say, "Oh, I don't, I cannot believe in nonviolence because it means turning the other cheek, and that just means that you know you will end up being oppressed by whoever has more power," and and that is a very real concern. That's a very legitimate concern. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not taking that criticism lightly at all. But I suggest that we hold this concern, like put it on, uh, you know, put it on the side of the screen for a moment mm -hmm. and look at something much more elementary and more important to put, uh, uh, you know, in the forefront, which is, is violence more natural to human beings than nonviolence? What is your understanding? Do you think, think, you see, a lot of pe people say that. Violence is a more basic instinct of the species mm -hmm. and non-violence is a learned behavior. What is your understanding? Uh, even I think so, but uh, the whole, so where I come from at least is, is that the very nature of us being evolving as human species, uh, I mean, we lost, if we follow the Darwinian school, if we lost the tail, it was for some higher cause. Now, if you have developed a brain, it's definitely for some higher cause. And if you are creating these imaginary layers of uh, social structures, religion, and and lot many layers, then it's definitely for something higher than the primitive instinct, which is violence. 
uh which is one of one of it is violence so my yeah. take is yeah it's it's uh natural but the whole idea is to restrain it or control it through different structures okay yeah so this is a broad this is a broadly held understanding correct mm-hmm. uh now fascinating thing is that in say in gandhi's time since gandhi ji is such an important uh, landmark right in the human exploration of nonviolence mm-hmm. uh, i hope that uh, uh, or maybe i should say it very clearly that nonviolence neither began nor ended with gandhi mm-hmm. so i in case many of your listeners are of the you know impression that gandhi somehow invented nonviolence yes he does have a epochal role in putting it into practice in political struggle mm-hmm. and and in our times in this age that we are living in now his role in that sphere is seminal uh but the striving for nonviolence is ancient and we can go into that later but what i wanted to focus on at this point was that in gandhi's time to say that nonviolence is as old as the hills was really quite uh, you know remarkable and he used to say that all the time right you know that right he would keep saying i'm not doing anything new nonviolence is as old as the hills hmm. because why it was remarkable because at that time the dominant idea which was coming from hobbes this whole you know european legacy of hmm. life is short nasty and brutish uh, uh, evolution is the survival of the fittest and fittest was misunderstood as more brawn more muscle more ability to be aggressive right all this was so we were in the grip of what was known as the killer ape theory okay this was a dominant idea that and this basically the killer ape theory and i'm my apologies to any experts who are listening i'm giving a very what i call amar chitra katha version here <laughs> in a you know in a completely or in the western lexicon you will say in a the four dummies version of this is <laughs> that it was argued that uh, those apes which were more capable of aggression and effective aggression evolved into homo sapiens because this was a question na hmm. why didn't all why did apes some apes remain apes why did the neanderthals die out why did sapiens sapiens survive i mean these are questions that are all still being looked into yeah but at that point this that aggression and the ability to uh, basically go to war for what you need or what you want hmm was the uh, defining um, uh, characteristic we were told but in the last 60 70 years there is a whole range of multidisciplinary research which has pretty much shown that this is not true of course the instinct for aggression has always been important mm. see if we didn't know how to protect ourselves say uh, by we i mean our ancestors say 200000 years ago yeah before language before um well fire would have been around but mm. i mean long before long long before uh, anything by way of you know recorded history 
ऑफकोर्स अग्रेशन वॉज एन इम्पॉर्टेंट पार्ट ऑफ आर मेक का बट इट मे नॉट हैव बिन दी एलिमेंट दैट एनेबल्ड द सेपियन सेपियन टू बिकम वॉट वी आर टूडे एंड आई कोट टू यू from the dutch primatologist and ethnologist uh, franz de waal that is f r a n s d e w a a l i i spelled it out in case i am doing any injustice to the pronunciation of his name he says we know a great deal about the causes of hostile behavior in both animals and humans ranging from hormones and brain activity to cultural influences yet we know little of the way conflicts are avoided or how when they do occur relationships are afterward afterward repaired and normalized as a result people tend to believe that violence is more integral to human nature than peace yeah so i i may not be uh, like i'm i'm definitely not a subject expert or or gone deep into researching these pieces but somehow at a very superficial level also it feels that people who have shown more compassion and love have stood larger in the timeline from buddha to to gandhi so definitely violence may not be the core characteristic it it sounds very uh, obvious but yeah that's where the research is required right Correct. how Correct. how I obvious mean, or how not obvious it is Yeah, that yeah because for i mean uh, if you take say for example a genghis khan or an atilla the hun mm. uh, yes they are known today you we know their names we know what they are famous for but they don't in any way influence our life mm. mm-hmm. today yep whereas what the buddha explored or what ashoka learned from his mistakes mm. uh should i tell the story of king ashoka on the assumption that everybody who listens to this uh, may not know please. the story yes please uh, so i think ashoka is um, 3rd century uh, bc mm. Mm. um he um, he appears a few years after alexander he is just very soon after alexander comes to india uh, he is from the mauryan dynasty and uh, like a lot of kings in the ancient world you know he goes about conquering and making wars and in one case in a place called kalinga which would be roughly present day orissa uh he uh, has a war of conquest which is so horrific it is so brutal the killing happens on a scale so large that even he is uh shaken by it mm. and something inside him changes and uh, and i'm quoting here from uh, navjot uh, nayanjot lahri uh who's uh, who has appeared in ahimsa conversations so anybody who wants to can go and listen to her conversation uh, she says that such a deep transformation happened in this man that he snatched defeat from the jaws of victory <laughs> he wins the war okay and then he says god i am so defeated mm. and that then uh, leads to a transformation he becomes a devout buddhist and he preaches then 
the message of compassion and nonviolence and and uh, many other values and i that is primarily why uh, when we were looking for symbols for modern india mm-hmm. the leaders of the freedom struggle uh, went back to ashokan india mm-hmm. so the ashoka chakra the lions Lutia. which appear on our currency notes they are our national you know they are uh, important uh, emblem yeah they are all from the ashoka's time and uh, of course now today there is a uh, an allegation mm-hmm. by some people that this is what made india weak mm-hmm. uh, and again nayanjot lahiri deals with that in her ahimsa conversation and if you like we can talk about that later mm-hmm. so um, so there are these examples and so to go back to where we deviated uh, that uh see ashoka is known i mean there's a ashoka fellowship a global program mm. called you know everyone a change maker mm. which was created by an american <laughs> but he called it the ashoka fellowship you know i mean you don't have a genghis khan fellowship <laughs> yeah yeah or alexander fellowship also <laughs> that's I, true though I, somehow you know yeah that's true that was also true <laughs> uh, more importantly you don't have a hitler fellowship and you don't have a pol pot hmm hmm scholarship as far as we know i mean yeah. i hope that is the case <laughs> yeah interesting uh, so uh, how did you sort of venture into this uh sort of zone of understanding or or inquiry thank you yeah that's a uh, a uh, very basic and important i think uh, entry point to this whole exploration to ex- you know to tell my story um so i was i started out as a journalist in 1980 uh, that's when i came out of college and uh, very soon i got involved with a whole range of activist uh, efforts in india at that so this is through the 80s and 90s and a lot of these uh, groups and networks was saying that what we call development is actually a very destructive process mm. and it is creating progress for some people at the cost of other people mm. and the cost was in the form of displacement either bodily displacement of your home and your land becoming inaccessible to you because it's needed for submergence zone of a dam or for a mine or or something but that uh, you are often even if you are not removed from your land and your home your traditional livelihood goes and you don't get a replacement livelihood all of that many things also the uh, the ecological damage not because these groups and networks were saying that oh you have to leave nature untouched there's no such thing as nature untouched human beings and have i mean our ancestors have been playing around with nature and changing uh, its shape and form from long before you know we could talk to each other uh, so that was not the criteria but the issue that we were raising uh, long before the term sustainable development came into the global uh, uh, vocabulary you know, actually vocabulary and yeah and became a buzzword was that what we call development at 
in the late 20th century cannot be sustained. Hmm. The hmm. planet has neither the resources nor the sinks. See, because hmm. uh, remember that the Club of Rome report has happened in the early 70s. Hmm. Hmm. A small is beautiful has been written in the 70s. Oh, I think it, it should have been long ago in India also, right? If if I'm reading it correctly, like more decentralized, more sort of sustainable. So that is what in the 80s, what a lot of these groups and networks were doing was discovering that all their concerns Gandhi had actually uh, in some way anticipated. Hmm. Not entirely, of course, because there were completely new things happening. But the fundamental point that, and he said it in the 40s, when the Western lifestyle was a fraction of what it became by the 80s and 90s. Hmm. He said that if the whole world starts living like the West lives, we need more than three planets. Wow. One planet Earth cannot sustain every human being living like that. Hmm. So, there is this issue of uh, knowing how much your ecosystem can sustain and so long before I learned the term structural violence mm -hmm. I was writing about groups and efforts uh, that were uh, you know uh, trying to counter it then, of course, much later, I think it may have been in the 90s that then we began to use this term structural violence. So that was happening. And, uh, of course, through this whole process of uh, following the work of so many different groups and networks, I kept running into Gandhi. Not as, you know, the person whom you could quibble with about minute details of how the freedom struggle should have been run or should not have been run. But the Gandhi with the civilizational vision. So mm -hmm. I began to, and in this I was deeply influenced by, you know, Professor Ashish Nandi, Shiv Vishwanathan, many such friends, Vijay Pratap of Lokayan. Um, to... In, with their influence, I began to make a distinction between the historical Gandhi, mm -hmm. who is a person born on a certain date, killed on a certain date, and he did ABCD actions over those, whatever, 79 years. Uh, but I felt that what is now really important is the civilization of Gandhi. The Gandhi who had an understanding of and a vision of what human civilization has the potential to be and what is holding us back to the extent that in Hinswaraj, which is a booklet that he wrote in uh, 1909, he argues that what the West calls civilization is not civilization at all. Mm. You know, there's a famous, uh, it's treated as a joke, but it actually happened. He was asked by a reporter in London, on one of his trips there for the negotiations. Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? Um, people say this, huh? but actually the reporter asked Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of modern civilization? Unfortunately, most people change it to Western civilization. Hmm. Uh, and Gandhi answers, it would be a good idea. Hmm. You know, like, yeah, you should work on it. 
you don't have one now you don't have a civilization and when he says this what he means is that when you have given absolute primacy to the material dimension of life and uh, given very secondary or tertiary status a to how you attain those material results b what consequences what externalities you create but more important than anything else that when you completely neglect the moral and ethical dimension mm. and you know say okay that is something that has to be done on the side when when the moral and ethical dimension is no longer the starting point of what you do you have lost the civil, you have lost claims to being civilized so oh, this was the background to cut a long story short in this background then uh, i did many different kinds of work i wrote one book on the the same the activists and networks that i had been part of that's called bapukuti uh, then i yeah. spent 10 years looking at the question of markets and uh, along the way somewhere by about 2016 i became completely obsessed with just one question that what is the story of non violence after gandhi Mm hmm and i asked this question to myself even though i knew very well that uh, nonviolence didn't begin with gandhi uh, but it disturbed me that very well educated people believed that uh, what is nonviolence in the 21st century it's not even worth talking about there's no, there's no such thing which was shocking to me because by then even on a very very superficial uh, search i knew that actually in the last 70 years there have been enormous developments and advances in the practice of nonviolence mm. so i made it a i made a commitment that i would now for an indefinite period try to find out what is this story and then i did the usual thing you know i just kept pottering about listening to people reading things and then i realized that you know this is a topic which one can't take 10 years and then produce another book in any case i realized that none, none of the young people in my life were excited about another book <laughs> mm. so i asked them nieces nephews young friends that you know you know that i'm on this journey in what way would you like to be updated on my search they said it has to be audio visual yeah. and that is how the idea of ahimsa conversations was born and to the credit of the techie world and i wanted noted that i'm praising them because i do so much complaining <laughs> uh, truly uh, youtube is idiot proof Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know a person of my uh, level of tech challenge with just on i mean in very first day maybe somebody i remember somebody showed me okay this is what a youtube channel is <laughs> honestly i didn't even know what a youtube channel was i just decided to do this and then with somebody's help i created uh, the you know the login and all that Hmm. and here we are 116 episodes in 3 years amazing and uh, you know looking forward to onward journey ha amazing. but let me sorry one last thing the, the more hmm. the really the more important uh, 
immediate motive. See, by 2020, it was very clear that this atmosphere of hatred and tension and conflict is not going to, you know, tone down anytime soon. And I also realized that when you engage with someone on a specific issue, you know, where you think something is wrong and they are saying, no, 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 you don't understand. It's a matter of whatever, importance and pride or whatever. And what I am saying is wrong and what they are saying is right. I realized that sometimes there is no way to break this uh, logjam on a specific issue. Uh, But it does open up some space if you say, okay, we can agree or disagree on, you know, whether we should drive on the left or the right of the road. that's, That's what I mean by a specific issue. And I'm giving a completely absurd example. Because I don't want to go into any specific issue here just now. Hmm. So I said that, look, whatever your position on a particular issue may be, can we separate that disagreement from violence, the issue of violence? Hmm. Meaning, in in a very rudimentary way, that uh, you may want X outcome, but are you willing to kill people for it? So, are you trying to extract or abstract out the ethical dimension within a conflict, or I mean, removing the 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 specificities? No, I am not at all. I'm not trying. I'm very clear. No, no. In the, in in, to... in sort of in sort of having that argument or continuing or trying to reach a synthesis, are you like in a specific issue, sort of trying to decouple those? Um. So, you know, l- let me confess that I'm loud thinking here with you. Hmm. Uh, in To some extent, yes. And I realize that this decoupling is very difficult to do on the ground. Hmm. Hmm. I accept that. Yeah. And many ma- in many situations, you are not able to build enough of a space, uh, you know, where uh, there is enough mutual trust that, you can do kind of like a timeout. Mm. <laughs> in a sense, what I was doing was like in a match, you know, you do, okay, one sec, can we have a, you know, like a 10 minute timeout here and mm. park the dispute on one side and just think about uh, how do we de-stress ourselves? Mm. And see, there is absolutely no doubt that violence is stressful. Yeah. Hate is tiring. Love is re-energizing. And this is very, sometimes this is difficult to see because the adrenaline rush, which accompanies a lot of hate, can be confused for energy. Mm. And of course, uh, there have been situations where it can be sustained, you know, for a a, a remarkable uh, period. But uh, a remarkable period is still not on and on and on. It has some, you know, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, I'll have to say it in Hindi and if you if you like, we'll translate it later. Yeah. 
a cousin of mine on a family dining table said one day i don't care whatever you may say i want to ha- i like that slogan garv se kaho hum hindu hain hmm. which literally means uh, say with pride i you are i am a hindu hmm. i said well i have no problem with that but i just want you to consider um just like a thought exercise uh, how about saying prem se kaho hum hindu hain hmm. you know let's say with love i say with love that i am a hindu and uh, it did diffuse the acrimony hmm now it doesn't happen in every situation correct uh and in this um maybe this is a good point to bring it in you know i've been very influenced by monica sharma's work on transformational leadership and she is also an ahimsa conversation so okay. she can also you can look her up she's one of the early ones in fact hmm. and in one sentence you know what i learned from her has been so significant she says listen first of all deep listening that's you know the the first thing that you have to attempt at least even if you don't succeed fully and then she said listen for the concern behind the complaint mm. now the complaint here complaint is a term that covers many things Hmm. you know your angst your opposition your whatever it is that you're against right yeah. complaint is a, a term that is used to cover all of that listen for the concern and i realized that you know when i first heard this it was like i don't know a ton of pennies dropped not one penny but many <laughs> pennies dropped mm-hmm. yeah i said yes yes of course this is it and you know it was very healing for me because otherwise i spent at least two decades of my whatever my work life you know just reacting against the person mm. who was saying something that i found obnoxious and not obnoxious because they like blue and i like red or something like that but something that really violated uh, what i consider to be a very elementary humane value mm. and so i spent a lot of time uh, you know just raving and ranting against that mm. uh, but i think from about the mid 90s is slowly i began to struggle or strive to see what is really bothering this person mm. you know what is the what is the source of their angst Hmm. and and you know that there is uh, mountains of now research psychological research uh for example on serial killers which is showing that uh, there is some um, you know deep wound some deep humiliation in their past usually in their childhood now that is not a justification <laughs> but you know sometimes an explanation can help us to navigate 
the rough parts of life better than we do otherwise if we you know if we are completely at a loss for understanding why something is happening mm. yeah so do, does it does it uh, if i want to just take a little digression that this deep rooted hatred or the the conflict and the dispute and and the match is happening uh, people is it is it fair to say that hey time out that time out is not even possible because of the ego or or maybe if you want to just share your reflections about ego or self respect because when you say garv and prem these are like very very there's a thin line uh yeah. so so yeah. any any yeah. thoughts you have spent on that you know first is that maybe we should separate for our purpose here in this discussion hmm. let us separate our own everyday life from world events hmm. sometimes you know we we i think we create confusion when we conflate the two so for example uh why is this not working in the ukraine conflict hmm. you know that's a whole i mean there can be hours and hours of discussion on that hmm. uh but that's very complicated and as akil bilgrami has so importantly pointed out in um in an ahimsa conversation professor akil bilgrami he teaches philosophy at mm. columbia in new york he says don't confuse peace with nonviolence mm. peace mm. is a matter of negotiation nonviolence is non negotiable it's a matter of fundamental ethics okay so i'm just uh, clarifying that uh, let's mm. not confuse peace and nonviolence now if we limit ourselves to the everyday life functions because i think that is more helpful for this exercise since you know we are not i'm certainly not qualified to comment on how um, the geopolitical struggles can take a different turn so you know ego is a term that's used too loosely sometimes hmm let us say that what i what i perceive to be happening i'm no expert on this is that uh just as we are attached to a view of ourselves see we all have a certain view of ourselves yep. right um and i don't know actually how much psychologists differentiate that from ego and i'm not i'm much more comfortable actually with the you know the indian framing the indic framing ke the sense of ahem self is very important mm. okay after all uh without that there will be no individuation mm. and without individuation how can i be part of a collective if there is no i so all those are elementary things um i think maybe the 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 tension and the stress begins when because we are so narrowly attached to the sense right. of perception right. both of how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive the other mm-hmm. uh that we are not able to uh um you know have a, a bird's eye view of the situation mm-hmm. 
can i can i share one small story which i heard please, in one of the please. so so i think it will be uh, somewhere online but i i'm fascinated the way uh, sn goenka who who has brought in vipassana into uh, india he he shared this story in the 10 day course and he he explains the situation it will take some time but it's very interesting so there's this uh, a person uh, who's sitting on the road probably somewhere on the road and you are walking by and it's quite uh, not well lit so it's a, you can't really identify that person and you're walking and you happen to bump into his leg so his leg touches your leg or whatever like he just stumbles upon the person and this just two people there and the the person sitting on the floor says dikhta nahi hai kya andhe which is like uh, can't you see uh, are you blind so he is almost like a derogatory sense he, he blames this person and this guy says ha ha theek hai sorry and he walks away now exactly the same situation where this person who's walking is also walking with two of his friends and exactly the same situation happens and same reaction but this time this person says like you should have sat properly na you could sit properly so they get into a little argument uh saying that like who am i like why are you sort of uh pointing me that i had made a mistake uh and then the third situation exactly the same thing happens this is one guy same one one uh, just one one person but he could identify him to be his son like assume that this person is his son who's sitting on the floor and then his anger is slightly heightened he he says aise bolte hai baap ko like what are like like don't you know how to talk to your father also and then he so grumbles. expectations have kicked in yeah and then the fourth situation which is the last is that the there are two people so again the same group is there and everyone knows that the person sitting on the floor is his son now it completely changes the dynamics so he explains all four situations four same reactions same actions but the the reactions and the the drama which unfolds there is quite different and that's where that's why i said ego in a sense that you yeah. you make an image of yourself and you also make an image of how you are in other person as well like i am like this you try to put that image in the matlab samne ke person mein yeah. you try and put in that yeah so I, i found this to be related like what you are talking to this, this. Is, i must say i this i don't remember this story is it in the 10 day course yes yes but he must they must he must have used different stories at different times yeah 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 but uh, <laughs> no really i mean i think we can we should take a moment to you know honor the memory of goenka ji <laughs> and uh, you know what a phenomenal uh, what a phenomenal life and contribution um, yeah. yeah so this i think this is a very helpful illustration mm-hmm. uh, and what it also highlights uh, of course here the emphasis is on the uh, how behavior changes depending on the unknownness of the relational connection between the two people and the uh, presence of others who are whatever witnesses or watching the situation but the other factor that it is highlighting for me is what the buddhists call um they have a word for it 
I can't remember the term. Basically, that we all have so many different selves. Hmm. Hmm. You know, which arise yeah. at different moments, and the re- the really fascinating thing is that we've all experienced moments of flash of anger, mm-hmm. followed by you know immediate regret. <laughs> so there's a, like a spike of anger, and then you feel, oh my gosh, why did I say that? Or you know, why did I overreact? So this arising feature, I think, is so important in everyday life. If we can hang on to this awareness, mm-hmm. then maybe we can be kinder both to ourselves and to others around us. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. because then it 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 highlights that. Uh, you know, nobody is permanently the mm-hmm. same. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's a continuity. Of course, there is a there's a kind of a broad and familiar pattern within which most lives and most people unfold and unflower, mm-hmm. or or not unflower. Sorry, unfold and flower and bloom. See Gandhi's own life, which in fact today these days people who want to denigrate him are getting so much masala because of that. <laughs> But that's I mean, you, I think those moments of his failures, his spikes of negative, what we the Buddhists so helpfully call afflictive emotions, they make him more real. Yeah, yeah. You know, Very true. and Very in true. fact, yeah, you and you know, in the Gandhi film, the Attenborough film. I've always been very grateful that you know he included that scene where Gandhi loses his temper when uh, Kasturba refuses to clean the latrines. Hmm. Oh, I I you don't recollect that? the movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it, it, it's worth watching. It's in the period when they are living in South Africa. Hmm. Hmm. Um. And. Uh, i think the greatest contribution you know of the rediscovery or the reintroduction of vipassana is also that it's primarily helping us to be at peace with ourselves mm-hmm. see we, we know i mean from just common empirical evidence around us that it is when we are not at peace with ourselves that we make un, you know we make uh, Trouble with other people. Hmm. Hmm. It's a. It's a. It's a. Yeah. Long self struggle, and that was my actually second question. Uh, we are digressing, but I'm enjoying the overall flow of it. Is that in in Vipassana, or uh, as you mentioned uh, before the recording, also about the athletes who are sort of trying to push their boundaries? They are also in a. So so, if we can like take us little again, little digression that violence with yourself is it advisable to push your limits or or is it even called violence? I don't know because as per the first definition yeah. when you started, it's it's yeah. kind of not matching yeah. up. So you know, it's I I think first and foremost that we are not going to get any definitive answer on this. That's why because. Different. i think it's it's always going to be very very subjective mm-hmm. um 
so let us but let us just for a, as an exercise uh, the first clarification we must put on the table is that the person is fully in charge of the choice they are making number one see that right that's elementary so i uh, meaning that there is no external pressure coercion or anything hmm okay that a person truly and an adult hmm. okay so somebody who we can whatever by convention we grant that okay now you are old enough to make your own decisions hmm. then in that frame of a person fully in command of their life i mean who is fully in command of their life but you know what i mean <laughs> who is reasonably yeah. who is not under any overt or covert pressure and uh, coercion this person it is very difficult to know when you are pushing your limits and when you are doing violence to yourself mm. i think it's a it's a it's only a process of self discovery mm. because they uh, go self indulgence is also a kind of violence only na mm. Mm. we know that there are some people fall into a trap of emotionally self indulging hmm self indulgence can be many things it can be self pity uh, it can be uh, yeah to a certain extent almost like a narcissist kind of correct. Uh, that's one that's one version of it hmm. uh, so really i think only the individual can for themselves take the call and ideally in a in an ideal situation the individual is not a lone individual if mm. that i feel that a person who is uh, connected with is embedded in some kind of wholesome community will be able to navigate these shoals mm. you know which means uh friends family colleagues comrades fellow travelers you know who will both admire what you're trying to do and yet you know call you out and say now stop it <laughs> you know you know you're starving yourself in you know or you're going to give yourself a heart attack if you do any more running or whatever so many ways in which you know uh, mm. people push themselves the other one thing and now i i don't know how if i can say this in a way that will land coherently i think one good litmus test when we are pushing our limits is to check if we are becoming arrogant because the one mm-hmm. thing that i have seen and it happens with austerity huh? i've seen this people with a great capacity uh this is not a generic statement i'm not saying this always happens but um the kind of if the austerity is very much a self control thing then sometimes you know it it creates a kind of um, maybe arrogance is too harsh a word but kind of pride i i, I yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean exactly in fact i'm going through that phase in my life because uh, mm-hmm. i remember recently i interviewed uh, keshav dr keshav chaitanya kunthe uh, he's a, a musicologist and a harmonium player 
and wow. to which i told him uh, i asked him in fact uh, after the after the interview i was in this conflict because i've been reading a bit of vivekanand where he said that in the west when he traveled and he said there are too many rules and too many rules is a sign of death which is a very very powerful statement and i was kind of confused and said even monastery is full of rules then how how is he saying this uh, and to which uh, dr kunte nicely explained that when you enforce rules on others it could be death but on yourself it's kind of austerity yeah. it's 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 much more peaceful uh, so i yeah, made so peace I, with that answer so far <laughs> yeah yeah no no i think that's that's i would agree with him and yeah. what i'm hearing him say is that we must distinguish between constraint and restraint hmm hmm between an external constraint and a self restraint yeah, yeah self restraint when it is uh you know done without which is when it's done very organically is very empowering it's hmm. very strengthening but can, again you... obviously sorry go ahead no no so can you can you sort of give any example from gandhi's life because i see a lot of restraint right self restraint yeah, you know yeah but the most famous example would be his fasting which you hmm. know is is even today uh causing so much controversy uh, uh and again i can refer to one ahimsa conversation in which uh, nandini oza who is a oral archivist of the narbada movement narbada bachao movement uh, she talks about this she has really delved into this issue quite a lot and uh, you know of course that the whole ambedkar gandhi conflict hinges on this mm. that gandhi is fasting as a method uh you know visa vis the negotiations with uh, ambedkar on the representation issue was a form of violence so that is that's the political side of it you know it's very difficult why go to gandhi hmm. see i've been a admirer and a friend and in some small way fellow traveler of medha patkar and i can tell you that we all used to feel so conflicted with her fasts because one the first thing is you feel guilty <laughs> because she is on day 10 hmm you know she is on day 10 and you're in awe of how she is still together she's not you know collapsing and what a amazing miracle that is uh, by fasting here we mean only uh, usually i think it was just water with a little bit of salt mm. because of india it mostly it's very hot so because the objective is not to die yeah yeah so you are you know one would admire her and yet there was this you know feel it's almost like you can feel how much her body must be protesting mm. so I don't know if this answers your question, Kedar. I think have we deviated from where we were? Because no, I'm. I'm, I, I'm only <laughs> sharing, you know, what I've. Uh, yeah. The difficulty, and it was not my personal difficulty. This was the experience of, you know, all the non-fasting people. 
mm. in that group um and yet one can't disagree with what she is doing also <laughs> because none of these were uh, you know these were not fasts on whim this is not you know these were all very carefully uh, reasoned uh, issues which she was trying to highlight mm. through the the uh, the fasting mm. if it was done on whim it wouldn't have lasted also i mean there has to be a deep profound i mean otherwise it will be madness yeah. right it will be no i mean uh, see or there have been instances where it was just on a whim and still people could pull it off by whim i mean see in a family context you know there can be a person who will torture themselves as a kind of a tantrum hmm i i was talking about like bigger social issues but yeah i got ha 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 that yeah 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 i don't know i don't know it all depends on uh, of also the individual's capacity to mm. you know it's it's also a physiological thing some people have a greater capacity uh, to um, deprive their body of food and water than other people there's no there's no single standard but i think that's not the issue here that's not what we are struggling with um i think what we are really struggling with here is that even if you say that i'm not fasting as a form of coercion vis-a-vis my opponent whether the opponent is a government or some opposing idea or whatever is it not still a coercion maybe i i must say that i have not come to any conclusion myself mm. on this Uh, it's it's yeah it's like very... <laughs> no go ahead ji go ahead no no okay. go ahead go ahead no just that i'm saying except that uh, what is very clear is that there is no comparison between if if at all this is coercion there's no comparison between this coercion and holding a gun to somebody's head mm. yeah at least yeah. in my mind i could you know i could maybe somebody could out argue me on that <laughs> no i know where like yeah i i think i can guess that it's it's many layered and as you keep uh, unpeeling the layers there are some deeper layers which are either conflicting or then contradicting and then you are continuously exploring that so maybe i'll i'll just change the track a bit more uh, is that uh, which is much more real and and maybe not that philosophical is that how do you respond to say criticism that nonviolence is ineffective or very idealistic right in 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 the face of oppression or violence that is happening uh, maybe yeah. one example or at a at a meta level also no no let's look at the data there's data on this Hmm. and uh, so first let's look at political conflict right that's what mainly i think your your attention was on that yeah, yeah. so uh, there's a study by erica chenovit and uh, what is the other lady's name it will come to me in a minute i have it here somewhere um they did a study of uh, political struggles throughout the 20th century hmm. and uh, a large majority of the successful struggles are nonviolent Um, 
uh, I mean, and they were more often successful. By successful, only means that you know they either managed to overthrow the regime and or they got fulfilled some of the demands for which those movements were happening. And uh, two basic reasons: one, that it is far more people can get involved. Mm. Okay, and. Uh, there's a much better chance that the change when it comes will be creative. Whereas a change by the power of the gun often doesn't bring, it may bring a change of regime, but it often doesn't bring transformation. Uh, what this study doesn't, I think, include, I can't remember now, but we know this from our own experience. That the question that I ask to most people who say this about the ineffectiveness of nonviolent struggles is can we first please make a list of the violent struggles that have just gone on and on and on without attaining their objective? Mm. Let's make a list of that first. So, you know, at this level, this question is easy to tackle. The difficult one is. Say World War II, what would you do? What could have been done? Was there a non-violent way to defeat Hitler? I don't think even Gandhi feels that. Mm. Um, and here I think we need to go back to certain fundamentals. And again, I emphasize here that I am loud thinking. I am, this is part of my ongoing exploration. Please don't take what I'm saying as some kind <laughs> of definitive, you know, statement. Yeah. That I would refer to Srivats Goswamiji. He is uh, also in a, this, he says this in his Ahimsa conversation. That it is not non-violence when it is based on fear. It is not non-violence. Hmm. If you're taking an action based on fear and calling it non-violence, that is a travesty. Yeah, it's an escape. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that means that actually you cannot be truly non-violent unless you have the ability to fight. <laughs> and uh, here then, of course, now we enter into a very complicated ground. But maybe... So there is a there's a story in the Mahabharat hmm. uh, where two uh, evenly matched uh, warriors are in a combat. I can't remember what weapon they are using, but they are in a one-to-one -one combat. And finally, one of them falls to the ground and the other one is about to strike the fatal blow when he sees fear in that man's eye. Hmm. And he pulls back. He says, wow. now I can't kill you. One, why? Because he said, you are a Kshatriya. You are not allowed to experience fear in the moment of death. Your fear has made me angry. If I now kill you in a moment of anger, that will be a pap, a sin. Mm. Get up. We will start again. We will fight again. And may the best man win. Wow. So beautiful. So, um, 
it's not this is violence and non-violence are not a binary divide mm. that much i'm clear few things i'm clear about but <laughs> this much i can say with confidence it's not a it's a it's a spectrum it's like a it's yeah no and it's like a it's like an energy that's in perpetual flux hmm it's a different dimension to see at it in fact i remember one more story which i was listening to one podcast on vedant uh by mm-hmm. swami sarvapriyananda from i think southern california and he mm-hmm. narrated one story that there was this like really high end kung fu master or tai chi master like really high end like he was the best at what he did and uh, he was walking on the road one day and there was one guy who comes in and like shows him a knife and says that give me all your money and he simply gives away everything that he has and uh, then everyone asked that why didn't you fight you are the best and he said how can i use these hands on this beautiful man <laughs> like it shows power right it shows like i mean these hands are not to like destroy somebody or uh, like it's, yeah. it it opens up a new way of looking at things <laughs> Ah, bilkul. See, and also that, uh, and this is an idea that is there across cultures. Hmm. That the stronger you are physically or in any other way, in terms of power structure and mental power, even moral power, the greater responsibility you carry. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, a very difficult thing to say sometimes because um, these days we are automatically suspicious of anything you know that describes a kind of hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, but i don't think that that uh, you know our our discomfort with hierarchy in contemporary times uh, doesn't alter the significance of this that to those to whom more is given more is asked um mm. see if you look at the arthashastra for example uh which is the uh, written by cotilia who's a contemporary of aristotle though they don't i think know of each other's mm. existence mm. as far as i know um of course it's a caste based system etc and there are different duties and different obligations ascribed different castes but non violence is common across the spectrum mm. Mm. and so what i am hoping to do through this journey of mine is to have a finer and finer understanding that what in that context did non violence mean mm. and i'm i think that story from the mahabharata is one illustration uh, though it's uh, you know uh, only one small illustration uh, mm. the other is how to say this see duties and obligations in a ideal world can be very organically interwoven hmm uh, sorry duties and rights sorry i don't mean duties and obligations is uh, not what i meant duties and rights hmm and that's a very it's a very complicated thing today Mm. how to um, you know navigate 
this space. But I have a feeling that that is going to be a very major dimension of uh, how we seek to, uh, you know, explore nonviolence in everyday life. In fact, rights is is very very far away for me to investigate. In fact, let's even if we stick to duties, what are duties, right? I mean, that itself could be a a journey of its own. Of of. Bilkul. And and is it? Yeah. The first question that comes up it is that our duty is something that is dictated to you externally, or is, or it? is it that which you discover for yourself? Hmm. Hmm. Let's look at something very basic. For example, care of aged parents. Yeah. Okay, there's a whole, you know, there's a massive force of history, culture, morality uh, that has messaged you that you must look after aging parents. But in the end, it's only a process of self-discovery. The book says, the book can say what it wants. But in real life, every person has to discover that duty within themselves. Mm. Otherwise, it's an imposition. Yeah. yeah. So do you, do you see non-violence again as a process of discovery? Yeah. As in self-discovery? It be. Because, yes. yeah. It has to be. Uh, and uh, otherwise, it will become, uh, you know, a workbook. But I'm sure there must be something which is practically applicable, right? And that's where yes, the yeah. beauty of uh, beauty of leaders like Gandhi would come into play, right? He he practiced, but he somehow influenced also. Of course. So so if it's self discovery, how? Can one be influenced? No, but uh, see, uh, no, but we are influenced because we are fascinated by the many layers of his self-discovery. Mm. I think that is the crux of it. Okay. So, you know, there's a very incident, uh, interesting incident that happens a few days before the assassination. Uh, in the evening prayer meeting itself, one man gets up. I mean, this is just two, three days before. I, I, I've used this story. I mean, I've shared this story in a lecture I gave, but I'm very bad with remembering dates. Anyway, this man who's in the audience, you know, it was an open house. Can you believe that? The, the world knew that there are people trying to kill Gandhi, but anybody could come to this prayer meeting. He refused to restrict entry. Hmm. Okay. So this man gets up and says, I object to your Having a Muslim prayer in the in your prayer meeting hmm. because everybody knew that it was a multi faith prayer meeting. Every world major world religion was represented in that multi faith prayer meeting. So this one man gets up, makes this objection, and the bulk of the gathering objects to him, right? Hmm. Because the bulk of the people who are gathered there share Gandhiji's perspective. Hmm. 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 Correct. Yeah. They have come for the multi-faith meeting. So they are upset with the objector. Now Gandhi is more upset with their reaction. <laughs> wow. Hmm. He's more upset with their reaction and 
course, he's also upset. With, but the thing is, see, he knew about the objector, right? It, this, it was not maybe mm. the first time that this happened. Every day, he was getting sacks full of letters from people who hated him. Mm. Most of the letters says letters were saying, why don't you drop dead? We'll be better off as a people, as a country, as a religion. That's the kind of mail he was getting. So, the, he said, okay, today we will now, I we will not have the prayer as a kind of penance. As in no prayer or just not the Muslim yeah. prayer? I think he, he, dis, he, he called off the thing because he said, there's no point. Wow. He's wrong. He's wrong, but so are we, you know, in in uh, shouting him down like this. And then the next day, the man comes back. I think he comes back. And Gandhi says, look, you, are, you know that this is a multi-faith prayer meeting. When you come here and you object uh, in that space, you are being unfair to those who have come for the multi-faith prayer meeting. Hmm. And uh, so we will proceed with our faith. I will not withdraw the Muslim prayer, mm. no matter how many people tell me to. And uh, you, if you feel that this is wrong, I welcome you to come and talk to me privately. But do not disrupt. It is not uh, appropriate to disrupt the public and the group gathering of people who have come specially because they are committed to the multi-faith prayer meeting. Very, very powerful person. Yeah, like what? Yeah, I, I'm just fascinated uh, with the kind of people who are just change the entire worldview by understand or trying to understand Gandhiji uh, from Vinoba Bhave to Medha Patkar. Like just, it's just amazing power. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is, and I think we are very blessed, um, you know, to have the opportunity, um, uh, literally, you know, to dip our feet and our hands in this flowing river. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, that's an that's also a very helpful metaphor. You know how we say that you can never put your feet hand in the same river ever. Hmm. <laughs> Correct. It's always different water. Every yeah. second, every minute, it is different water. Mm. So in one sense, uh, the idea that it's the same river is notional. Mm. There is some water. Okay, that some water is always there. Mm. So, um, that process maybe, of discovery. Yeah, go ahead. No, maybe it's it's just the direction, or as they say that there's a current of flow, right? There's a current correct. which is which is uh, flowing through. That and is maybe correct. You... Correct. Correct. Mm. Hai. And 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 for us, that very visible continuity, uh, accepting and recognizing that is very important no, to our having a steady grasp of the world. Mm. See, now astronomy is telling us, right, that some star that we take for granted may have actually collapsed, but we won't know for, for a million years or whatever, you know, because the yeah. light has, the light we are seeing today mm. left from there a million years ago. Yeah, I know it's it's 
like yeah i i can sort of relate to the kind of journey that you are on to uh, with this because it's just ever fascinating i would say but uh, just to conclude this conversation right uh, i wanted to ask you that like what do you see as a long term future of ahinsa as a concept like is there given the current setup definitely it's 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 a very much required thing but in yeah. a long run maybe 100 years out uh, or is it too so, weak to guess you know, that i part? find that because you mentioned 100 years i should mention that i asked around a while back uh, to some youngsters in my life who read a lot of science fiction ke bhai Uh, is there any utopian science fiction you know with some positive hopeful view of the distant future wow. mm. and and they said no actually and they had not thought of it otherwise they said no that's interesting you know most of what we read is very dystopian mm. so ek to ye hai that i just i'm just putting that uh, as a a factoid and i hope that somebody will listen to this and send me news about the hopeful science fiction because i would love mm. to know about that i have been a big fan of star trek mm. um in if you know about the american series the original one made in the 60s and now that original series was actually a very interesting exploration because it i mean the ships have lasers that can you know destroy entire fleets and all that but the whole world of that serial the 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 imagined world is premised on the as you know the created history that human beings learned to conquer their violent impulses oh, it took okay. three it took the third world war hmm. etc and so anyway i, I just brought that in as an aside I don't want I don't want to engage with this question uh, through science fiction necessarily um so it's important here to mention that Gandhi ji's view is very clear uh, and kind of very rudimentary also that we will either learn to uh, make non-violence central to our actions in the world or we will perish he is very clear and um two years ago i wrote an essay which was a lecture actually um which uh, to the indian academy of science in which i looked at how gandhi and oppenheimer the father of the atom bomb how they both how surprisingly uh, they have a common ground at one level on the atom bomb oh okay mm-hmm so uh, see openheimer by history as a person was a pacifist mm. okay but he's a this is the work he does and he gets assigned to head this project and it's a very agonizing exercise by which he comes to the conclusion um that uh, the world simply cannot afford the human species cannot afford the risk of the nazis splitting the atom before the allies mm. 
that the whole future of the human species may hinge on this. So he, um, you know, works non-stop for what is it, almost four years. And they create the mom. And uh, and then from the moment that it's uh, the test is done, he starts lobbying for it not to be used. Mm. Though he knows that, uh, and he's heartbroken, he's very disgusted when the Americans decide to use it the way they did. Because there was no need. Anyway, all that is complicated. The, the Oppenheimer story at that phase is complicated. Suffice to say that after the war, Oppenheimer becomes the leading campaigner for the abolition of nuclear weapons. Mm. <laughs> which causes him to be witch-hunted by McCarthy in the 50s. You must be a commie. If you, if you are lobbying against uh, nuclear weapons, you must be a communist is the allegation. I mean, his mm. brother was a member of the Communist Party. That was also used against him. And he mm. was stripped of his security clearance. Okay, which is only restored few years, a year or two before he dies by Kennedy. Okay, so I was saying that uh, on the day he was assassinated or either the day before that, Margaret Brooke White, the famous photographer for Time magazine, came to meet Gandhi. And she hmm. asked him, just now if the bomb was falling, what would you do? The atom bomb. Hmm. He said, I won't go to the shelter. What's the point? I would rather stand outside, look up and pray for the pilot. So, um, I'm telling you all these stories because actually I don't have a simple and straight answer to your question. Uh, or at least my answer may be very boring for you, which is that I don't know how things will go. Mm. I don't know that. Um, but I don't need to know also. Because what what is worth doing is worth doing regardless of the outcome. Yeah. Right. And I here I'm really leaning heavily on the power that I get from that which I don't know. Mm -hmm. Money in the sense that I don't know where <laughs> just now some star is, you know, turning into a black hole. And how that may affect the dynamic of this complicated uh, universe. So let's, I'm taking it absolutely to the, you know, no, the no, outer I... reaches of the galaxy. And then I come back, I'll come and then I'll zero in completely to our present. And I don't know tomorrow what somebody will say or do, you know, which will have a ripple effect mm. on millions of lives in this country. I don't know. Um, and therefore, and, and, and I do know that it is utterly futile for me to just be frustrated with this, not knowing. Mm. So, uh, you have to just keep alive those ideas, values, and hopes, um, which, for which uh, we have proof. That they have brought us this far. Yeah. Is there a, a very huge component of sacrifice in non-violence? Yes, but I don't think it's more than that of a soldier who is equipped and trained to go out and kill. 
Huh, that actually is interesting. I brought that also out. I wanted to share with you. This is a quotation from a man who uh, has been a trainer uh, for uh, the American uh, Army. It's the he's his name is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He's the author of On Killing: The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society. He says there can be no doubt that this resistance to killing one's fellow man is there, and that it exists as a result of a powerful combination of instinctive, rational, environmental, hereditary, cultural, and social factors. It is there. It is strong, and it gives us cause to believe that there just may be hope for mankind after all. And he's saying this on the basis of. Um, you know lived experience as a trainer and this is now known about armies across the world that mm. it is a huge task they have to work very hard to break down people's <laughs> natural resistance to killing yet this i am not saying there aren't people who have some psychopathic tendency but that's not the average person mm. So if yes, of course there is sacrifice involved, but I'm not sure it's more sacrifice, you know, than the soldiers who is sent out in this charge in which there is like a two percent chance that he or she will come back alive. No, what I meant ah, when in sorry, yeah, what I ahead. meant in in what I meant in the sacrifice sense is that as you said that you don't know, and still you it's it's almost for karm karo phalki chamat karo. Wala angle mein, you keep doing, you keep discovering or uncovering different facets of non-violence without, without, I don't know, without, it's, it's, it's a crude way to say without hoping that it will be implemented in everyone's thought or I, I I don't know. I'm not able to frame myself yeah. correctly, but no, no. Without without uh, you know caring, what you're saying is, are you being indifferent to the outcomes? Is that what you're mm. asking? Not uh, really. No. Not really. What I what I meant uh-huh. is that when you shared this story that Gandhi was praying for, like he would have prayed for the soldier uh, who or the pilot to to stick on to this whole idea of non-violence or 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 have a firm conviction in it. It needs that restrain and then that's why there is a lot of sacrifice where you are almost letting go of yourself completely and in its highest form yes perhaps Mm. but as i said it's a sliding scale Mm. that's not the only place you can live Mm. you know i like to sing i'm never going to be a suniti chahan or a lata mangeshkar but that doesn't stop me from and my friends from enjoying whatever level of singing that I do do. Beautiful. You, know. So yeah. I'm saying that in this also there is there is that uh, spectrum, and I don't want to at all imply that uh, it's okay to be on a treadmill. See, th- there was a film in India some years back. I think that has given us a very good metaphor. Lage raho munna mai. Okay, now that lageraho to me is a dynamic state. And the the crux of that dynamism perhaps is that 
I I refuse to get frustrated with what is not achieved. Mm. That doesn't mean that I'm smug about what is not achieved. Yeah. To be able to continue to refine the struggle without, uh, you know, bitterness. Actually, that may be the most crucial requirement. Mm. Because the actual, maybe worst enemy of ahimsa is bitterness. And you mm. will find if you look even on the surface, you can see it. That the crux of the uh, whatever, the generation of hate and envy and violence or violent conflict, that entire narrative is based on bitterness mm. and resentment. Yeah. At a very trivial level, you see that in those fights which happen at whatsapp forwards right you, you you sort of try to switch off after some time because somewhere you are engaging in a dialogue which is landing up in bitterness yeah 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 <laughs> so uh, in a sense what i'm saying is that if you can keep the struggle alive inside you and around you without feeling uh, embittered, mm. then that energy itself, hopefully, will keep refining and recalibrating. And see, this is not only about individuals. When I say all these things, actually, of course, at, at the root of it all, it, it's, you know, what do you do yourself? But one should also not feel that uh, any of this is really possible without collectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the collective persists and uh, and the collective is not necessarily an organization. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, from 1857 to 1947, there's no organizational continuity. It's an idea. Yeah. It's an aspiration for which in retrospect, you can see a linking thread. Amazing. So I'm saying let's have confidence in those invisible linking threads. But that are not visible to us now. Now, yeah, yeah. That's but they, are, they are not but, actually invisible. Yeah, yeah. But they are inside. They are continuously, they are just not maybe manifested. But it is an underlying. Or, or, or not manifest in a form that we are able to grasp. Mm, maybe yes. yes. Why the the sound waves always existed in the whole journey of uh, the whole evolution of this planet and the physics of the cosmos? Sound waves were always there, mm. right? And if anybody had told you that, say in five hundred AD, or in even seventeen hundred AD, uh, you know, AD, anywhere in the world. That there would one day be devices with that. Firstly, that there are sound waves, and that human beings will find a way to tap them. Mm. Would we have believed it? No. Mm. But they were there, no? We mm. they were manifest even. We just mm. couldn't, uh, yeah. you know, manipulate them. We couldn't uh, tap them to our purpose. And here we are today. Having this conversation, 
<laughs> yeah, it's so satisfying to see this from this perspective. There's a lot of hope yeah, there. So, yeah, so in a sense, maybe this is a good point on which to wrap up. Yeah. That uh so the radio waves thing illustrates what I'm saying about uh the resources are already there. It's a mm-hmm. question of um um you know unpredictable or um at the moment unknown um energy uh, you know people and circumstances um making them more manifest mm. of course it won't happen on its own lots of people experimented right before we got the radio the transistor yeah. sorry so the same will happen is happening already that's why so many people across the world experimenting struggling there's a whole movement you know of struggling for creating departments of peace in governments across the world what about that <laughs> cool i think uh, we can uh, probably end on one quote which which i think gandhi famously said an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind and i think that's a very positive thing that we can take away and and think about it that science yeah. can be discovered in many ways within yourself yeah. and then transpiring it to other people around uh rajni it was just amazing talking to you thanks a lot oh, for giving you your time it was, it was great really privilege. a pleasure and an honor to be with here with you on this show and thank you again so much for including me pleasure talking to you okay okay thanks a lot thanks a lot that's it and that's it from today's gyan session for show notes and more gyan visit audiogyan.com and if you wish to connect with me i am at audiogyan moments on instagram until then take care